You're listening to the Project Horse Podcast. Horse training tips, Q&A, and horse business commentary from Jake and Luke of Lundahl Performance. New episodes go live every Friday with extras content throughout the week. To submit a training topic or question, hit us up on Facebook or email lundahlperformance at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to yet another Lundahl Performance Project Horse Podcast with myself, Jake Lundahl. I'm joined here with my brother, Luke. Today, we're going to be breaking down a couple different topics in our continuation of our Advanced Horsemanship 101 series of topics. We're going to delve into the murky, esoteric depths of lead changes. And uh, this has been a long time coming, and I have a feeling that we're going to be bloviating so much about this that it's going to probably expand into several segments of advanced horsemanship 101 are those even real words <laughs> for the next few episodes uh but it, basically what we want to try to do in this one is hammer out the basic amount of preparation that we feel is ideal before you start changing leads and what you need to accomplish in order to make your job easier when you actually start asking for the lead changes um there's a lot of ways to do it we want to put our opinions out there and just, you know, give you a nice take on what we feel is appropriate and also break down some of the other <laughs> other methods of changing leads we've been exposed to and why we think they're uh, inadequate at best. And then in our first topic today, though, what we're going to lead off with is kind of a question that I got recently on email. We've had a lot of similar questions, uh, especially people coming to us with questions about starting two and three year olds and and this lady in particular, she sent me a question the other day. She said, recently I started my three-year-old colt under saddle, and I've been riding him for about three months now. At first, you know, everything felt great. He was a quick learner. We raced through the starting process. The next few weeks in the arena were great. He rode better every day. But then around two months in, things just fell off the rails. He started riding worse and worse every day. Bad habits just seemed to appear out of nowhere. What should I do? And I guess you could kind of title this segment, horses will lie to you. You know, like there's a, there's a lot of propaganda out there of, oh, the horse is so honest and, you know, all, all this emotionality stuff that you see on Facebook and usually, you know, all these flat brim wearing hee-haws are out there talking about how spiritual all of this is and whatnot. And, but this is a real world thing that so many of us deal with, which is that for a while, everything seems good on the surface, but what we find out later is all that cutesy-cutesy, you know, just kind of surface-level control we've had with our two- or three-year-olds or whatever, if we don't push the envelope, if we don't go deeper than that, if we don't just keep raising the bar, keep raising our expectations, if we rest on our laurels after two to three months we then find out just how wrong we were and just how shallow we actually got into this horse's mind. And that's when problems and major issues start happening. Things start falling apart. We see this 
all the time, constantly. It's something we've railed about a lot in our Q&A and podcast is stop being fake because the horse will lull you into this false sense of security. Oh, absolutely. And uh, another thing along that same lines that we that we see a lot of time, um, this question in particular wasn't so much along this line, but it is very much a commonality is every horse always starts out great. You know, every, every horse is, is great when at the very beginning of the training process. But once you put pressure on that horse, then you really expose what is underlying and what the true nature of that horse is. It's, it's like, um, you know, having the, the fat teenager at home on the internet. He's this hardworking, devoted, you know, manly man. So much out, cooler online. Exactly. Yeah. But then when his parents come home and they tell him to go mow the lawn, well, then the real personality comes out. Maybe he is what he portrayed online. But chances are he could also be the complete opposite of that, and he could be this, you know, arrogant, lazy, spoiled little brat who puts up a huge fight and, and works harder to not mow the grass when then he could just go out and mow the grass. So a lot of horses they start out great and you know everything looks amazing for the first couple of weeks to a month of training, and then you get into about a month and expectations are rising, pressure is is increasing, you're asking this horse to do things and you have expectations. And now all of a sudden things start to fall apart. And, Mm -hmm. you know, once you put pressure on the horse and you test them and you find out what they're made of, you you really get to the core of is this horse good mentally or, you know, what we call like a bad minded horse, which is incredibly important, especially the more advanced you're trying to be with your horse. And maybe if you're trying to push him toward a certain discipline, that's where I think so many wrong expectations come in. And as trainers, we've it's been our job to try to sort these issues out when people come to us, and they often have a very wrong, uh, some you know impression of their horse's mental abilities and just what kind of horse they actually are. It's 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 the equivalent of, you know, like um, you could say a parent shows up with their kid on the first day of basketball practice. And they're talking about how little Johnny is going to be a superstar. He's so hardworking. He's super athletic. He's really talented. And yeah, shooting hoops in the driveway with the little portable basket, you know, Johnny might be amazing. He might be hitting every single uh, three-pointer in dad's driveway. But you get him in the gym, you get him against other kids, you get him in a basketball program where now we're doing things that aren't so fun that involve more than just shooting hoops. We're doing conditioning and drills. We have to run and play defense. That ain't so fun anymore. And we start to figure out just how much talent and try little Johnny actually has. And a lot of people never get to that level. Like they never, you know, like they'll kind of coast along on just a surface level of control. A good example would be like a lot of pleasure horses we've been exposed to and even had in for training. Those seem to be the worst as a general rule because they're already so docile naturally anyways. They're just quieter, just nicer type horses to be around. So people have even less body control on them. You know, they, they really don't have any hip control. They can they can kind of push their hip up a little bit on the rail and, and cutesy-cutesy around. But then you actually start getting this thing to step off on a collected lead departure, do transitions with dramatic changes of speed and direction, 
anything that requires a little bit more exertion beyond just po-dunking it down the rail, these horses, they do not want to have anything to, to do with that. And what we've seen, especially with young horses, is you'll get to a point like that in the training where they, they've kind of thrown up little smoke signals of resistance at first, but you kind of have them back on their heels when you first start out because you're throwing a lot of new information at them in the first few weeks to two months. They're being saddled, bridled, ridden, groundwork. They're taught all these different exercises. So they're trying to take in all these informa- all this information. Uh, but if you don't continue to push the envelope and demand more and more, they might throw up a little bit of resistance here and there. But then one day, the full court press really happens because they've had long enough now to observe how everything works and horses are masters of observing behavioral patterns and then figuring out how to exploit them and cheat the system. Now, we know how to use that psychology to our advantage in training, but where it works against you is in this case where they see all the weaknesses in the areas where you're letting them get away with things, you're not pushing the envelope and asking for more. They're like, all right, well, that's all they got to give. And if you ever step over that line, they've got a massive problem with it. Right. And it's important to make the distinction. We talk about, you know, the pressure you apply on the horse can bring out either the the best in your horse or bring out the true kind of quote unquote, you know, demon in the horse. Maybe they aren't such a, you know, uh, willing partner to have that a, my, a type personality. They don't have that great try that is required maybe for, uh, you know, more advanced type of discipline. But this is this question in particular that you brought up isn't quite that case. This is more so just a symptom of not pushing the envelope and challenging the horse, but rather just letting it get into like a comfortable rhythm and not really testing anything, just kind of getting it somewhat broke and somewhat trained and then using and everything kind of feels right at the moment. So then they just kind of go from more of a training mindset to just a maintenance mode. Yeah, well, and this lady in her follow-up, she provided more details about this horse. And the biggest takeaway for me was what from what it sounded like. She didn't send me videos, so I don't know for sure. And I haven't seen the horse in real life. But just the way she described how she has to ride this thing, it sounded like a situation where this thing really doesn't move off your legs. Uh, it really doesn't have a lot of body control. And they, they took it from this cult starting stage to now we're doing, you know, circles and, and pattern work and rail stuff. And she talked about, you know, I've got a, I've got a seesaw on his mouth to get him down into frame and all this other stuff. And it's like, you're a few months in on young horses that you say are green. That shouldn't be the case right now, at least from our, from our perspective. Like my intuition says, you raced through like a grass fire through the cult starting stage. Never really. And that's, we talk about so much exposing the horse to a certain amount of pressure and not being satisfied to just cutesy cutesily, you know, yield their little hindquarters in the arena and, oh, get them to back up a one slogging molasses type step at a time. You know, like the, the, the best people that we've ever worked for were very assertive about pushing the envelope every single day with their horses and trying to advance things. Like that seems to be the number one factor overall. The successful people that we've worked for and studied under, they all have one thing in common, which is they don't just accept everything at face value. 
you know, like, and I've kind of developed that intuition a little bit as well, where somebody comes to, to me and says, oh, my, you know, my, my two-year-old, I started a couple months ago. Oh, he's just so amazing. He's doing so awesome. He's the fastest-minded horse in the world, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting here kind of skeptical, like, have you really hit that, that level yet where inevitably every horse at, at a certain amount of time, depending on how much pressure you're putting on them, they're going to throw up that major amount of resistance. And yes, they're going to test you, so to yeah, speak. Every single one will. Even the best-minded horses seemingly will start out great, and then here comes the tests, here comes the resistance, here comes the quote-unquote bad habits that you didn't see brewing under the surface, but you start doing a lot of loping, rollbacks, you know, transitions, all that type of stuff. You really start getting into them deep as far as your softening goes, really bending them around, doing all these other things, counterbending, two-tracking, actually getting them to move off your leg and soften. Um, you, you expose them to all that, then the real demon comes out sooner or later. But But see, then you can deal with it, and you have to be smart going in about the fact that every horse is going to throw that at you sooner or later. So you can be practical about, okay, every day I need to be pushing this, this, and that. I need to be getting this better, you know, and expect that you're going to run into resistance. Don't just be like, oh, yeah, we worked on a few sessions of side passing and, and he can do it, you know. It's like, no, that's the wrong mentality to have with a young horse. And um, I, I honestly wish, and we've talked about this before, that people could get on a finished horse, like the kind you would have been riding in Arizona, for example. I remember when I came to visit you, I hadn't even been down there yet. And I get on this horse and people don't understand the, the level that if a horse has been exposed to a certain amount of pressure and taught to take responsibility for what's going on to where you don't have to micromanage and run every piece of them 24-7, you get on that thing and the amount of softness and control and responsiveness you feel, you think to yourself, wow, this, this is it. You know, this isn't just like face value stuff that I have to maintain on the back end forever. This is the pearl. This is the thing itself. Like th that's what a finished horse really is. But, but the key is that the person who trained that horse pushed the level dramatically every single day, you know, not, not went out of his way to be stupid about it, but was always driving at getting this thing better and better, not just settling a few months in of, yeah, that maneuver's done. Right. And that's really, you know, the people that we've gotten uh, the privilege to really work from, uh, work for and learn under, you know, it's a hard balance, um, pushing the envelope, but yet, not overdoing it. Like there's so many people that, oh, you got to push the envelope. All right. Well, all right. I'm going to go envelope push every day, all day, you know, and they end up just totally, you know, using the horse like a machine, riding it like a motorbike and just running it in the ground just because they're trying to push the envelope and push it past to any points of resistance possible, which is completely ridiculous because it completely you know, negates the fact that you need to be a thinking horseman. There are, you have to go about it in a, you know, a smart way, kind of feeling out the horse's expectations and their abilities. And the people that are, like, that are successful have figured out how to do that. They understand how to push the envelope, but yet they understand the limits of how far they can push that. And this question in particular, the, the problems that they're having, 
Yes, they pushed the envelope initially with that horse for the first few months, and things were going well. They were making progress. The horse was getting better. It was getting broke. But then after about three months, everything felt pretty decent. But after three months with a green horse, nothing is really good. You're only three months into this horse's life in his training. He's not trained yet. No. There's no training that you could you could say, okay, he's done. And then you transition over from that, okay, to, all right, well, I've got the training done. I can just maintain that now and go now pattern him up and work on stuff like that. Well, now you've shifted from you as the rider being the assertive one that, that's getting the job done, like going out there and saying, okay, you know, you're like a teacher. Okay, class, here's our lesson for today. You know, open up your pages to such and such, and you lecture the class on your lesson. You've gone from that mentality to, all right, students, what do you want to work on today? Okay, Johnny, you come up here and I want you to lead the class today. You be the teacher for a day. And now you're just sitting at the sidelines and you're letting the students teach the rest of the class. And then every time the student goes off on a tangent and starts, you know, um, hot jumps on his soapbox and starts railing against something that's completely wrong, then you have to go up and say, no, no, Johnny, that's not right. That's not right. No, don't listen to him. This is what you're supposed to. And then you have to like correct him and teach and, you know, re-lecture the class on what they were supposed to hear. So now you're, you've basically just kind of taken the passenger type of approach to this now. And the horse is really just dictating, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do. And then you have to constantly block all these jabs that the horse is throwing at you rather than you being the one that's the leader and says, okay, this is what we're going to do. You're just yeah. sitting there saying, all right, what, what are you going to, what are you going to try and do today? And then he tries this. You're like, oh no, you're not supposed to do that. That's wrong. No, no, don't do that. And you just have the whole ride. You're saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Oh, stop that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Rather than, okay, this is what we're going to do today. Yeah. That makes sense. No, absolutely. And just to wrap this up, I think that goes back to something we've harped on with a lot of our Q&A, which is consistency, and in this case, consistently riding with purpose, as you just described. Um, I think that's that's absolutely crucial there, um, because we, we see that so often where people, they get into a mindset of, you know, I mean, like you just alluded to, three months, even, even four or five months into a horse's training, if it's a green horse, nothing is set in stone, and I, I, I don't think enough... And we've been guilty of this. And in, you know, previously with what I was doing, I didn't really grasp that enough. Like I thought, yeah, we're a couple months in. I mean, I've worked a few sessions on side passing. I've been moving his hip around. I can two track. I can counter bend. Yeah, I can get some vertical flexion on him. Like I've taught him. What I didn't, what I, what I need to realize is no, none of that is set in stone. It's going to decay if I don't continually try to get this better and go out every day with some sort of a purpose, not, not, you know, go crazy in every aspect, but be smart about where, you know, what this horse is capable of, uh, where he's at right now, what are sort of the weak points or the things that I need to work on and focus my attention there. If you take a back seat, then you give the horse time to, kind of recover from all this new information and the new paradigm you've established in your training. Even if you're a couple months in, he's still in the mindset of, okay, now I guess this is my life here. How do I create shortcuts and adapt to this to make this easier on myself? And he'll look for ways to 
exploit you and shortchange you if you lose your momentum. Yes, I think it goes back to just the, the fundamental truth. Your horse is either getting better or worse every day. And every minute that you're interacting with him, he's either learning something positive or he's learning something negative. So let's make sure, as horsemen, that every day they're learning something positive. All right, let's talk a little bit about lead changes and specifically sort of demystifying our intuition or I guess our thoughts on the preparation that you need to have on your horse before you need to be worrying about a lead change. Um, this is sort of in response to a lot of questions we've got lately, which, you know, how do I ask for the lead change? What do I need to do to prepare? Like, what are some basic checklists of stuff I need to do on my horse, etc. We get a lot of those type of questions and we wanted to sit down and start hammering this out. It's probably going to take several sessions. In this one, we kind of want to talk about our mindset and a few of the preparatory things that we do. One thing we want to hammer on, though, is that everybody has a lot of different tactics and exercises that they'll teach in preparation for lead change. But one thing we see across the board is that almost no one ever really prepares the horse enough uh, enough every question we get without fail if if somebody's asking us my lead changes are very inconsistent you know my horse doesn't have a lot of control or wants to stiffen up and climb out of the bridle and run off etc it's always comes back to a lack of preparation um but and you know we've we've been exposed to a lot of different tactics uh, along our career some of them uh, even that I've seen have involved, like this is straight cowboy right here, which is lope them over a pole and kick them into it as they jump over the thing on or the ground. The, or the, uh, my personal favorite is the <laughs> left circle, left circle, left circle, right circle. Yes. The, the screaming figure eight as we call it. Um, but the two schools of thought that we've been exposed to that we like are kind of as follows. One is to do lots of leg yielding, lots of body control exercises, lots of softening, work on every piece and element that goes into the lead change. Now, that school of thought in particular, when it comes time to actually change leads, we're not such a big fan of how that gets done because it involves, you know, kicking them into it, uh, just a lot of moving parts and, and it's a lot more work. Whereas uh, on, on the flip side of that, there's another school of thought that says, don't worry about that so much. Uh, just do a lot of counter cantering. And then one day, you know, you just start queuing for the lead change. It's a little bit more subtle. Uh, the horse is confused. They run around. And then finally, they kind of flip into it and find the answer. And you come back and refine everything later. But you keep the, the actual cue for the change very simple and straightforward. And you're not, you know, dramatically kicking them into it. We like that aspect of that, but we also like the amount of preparation beforehand. So I guess our goal is to kind of meld the two together. We're doing a lot of body control, but then making our cue very simple and straightforward and not having to, to basically kick the horse into it. Um, so we fall somewhere in the middle. So, But one thing I want to address up front is to avoid the mistake of assuming that any hip control you do or body control at the walk, like side passing, two tracking, yielding the, the hindquarters from a standstill, that any of that is adequate preparation for changing leads. We meet so many people that are like, yeah, my horse can side pass 
how do I start doing flying lead changes? You know, and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, in actuality, any body control and yielding and stuff like that that you do, it does, I mean, it's a necessary step in the beginning, yes, but it doesn't really help your lead change program unless you do extensive amount of practice at the jog and especially at the lope. So in our opinion, the, be the best exercises you can work on in preparation for changing leads are, of course, side passing. That's a very foundational level exercise. Beyond that, though, we do a lot of counterbending with our horses at the walk and the jog, and we do a lot of two-tracking at the walk and the jog. We, we effectively use, use those exercises to practice like a mock lead change at the jog, teaching the horse the, the body control and the positioning for it. Um, we also do some side passing on a circle at the walk. That comes a little bit later when you've got a little bit more control and the horse is able to do that. Um, we also do a lot of yielding the hindquarters on a straight line or what other people would call, you know, pushing the hip up at both the walk, the jog, and the lope. There's different ways of introducing it. We like to do it on the rail. Then you practice that out in the arena in various ways. But one thing everyone always overlooks is doing a lot of counterbending and counter cantering, both of those at the lope. That is like the holy grail. That's the crucial stuff you need to have good in order to change leads. Everyone always does what I just listed, then they neglect those things and wonder why it all falls apart. Well, I hope that, you know, in doing this, uh, it's going to take several podcasts for sure to unpack this. Um, and you know, one of the things that was always frustrating for me about the lead change was, okay, so let's talk about the basics leading up to lead change. And as soon as I would read those words in a magazine article, I knew that they were pretty much going to offer nothing. It was going to be a little bit of chicken feed, like you like to say here and there. And we would yeah. never actually get into the tactical knowledge and advice of how to actually navigate the lead change. You know, it's one thing to change leads one day, but I've got two more years of changing leads to try and get this thing to eventually change one hand in the show pin. How do I go from what you just described as the setup to the actual refinement? And so I hope that, yes, we have to harp on the, the initial stages, which everyone loves to do. So bear with us here. But it's and everyone says this, but it is so true. It is absolutely essential that you have the horse broke loose at the walk and the jog before you go into the lope. And even at the lope, there's so many things that you can do to set up and prepare your horse for it that's going to make the lead change so much easier. So we need to do our due diligence here and talk about the setup for the lead change. But hopefully we're going to, we can articulate this in a way that kind of describes, yes, the beginning stages, but also working our way through to the more refined stage and the troubleshooting in between. But so on the topic of actually like preparing them. I think, especially at the jog, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, like we were exposed to, they would just side pass at the walk, sometimes using the fence as the barrier, not even side passing like off the fence, but just side pass at the walk. And then, okay, that is essentially a side pass or I mean a lead change, sorry. So side pass at the walk for a couple days. All right, now they're prepared for lead changes. Let's go change leads. And then it's, you know, gallop around the outside of the arena until eventually it finally changes. Well, and then a couple weeks into that, it eventually... You, after after all these years of, um, and especially having worked with actual show horses now, do you still buy into the idea that a, side, that a lead change is basically a side pass in midair? Do you think that's an accurate representation of what's going on? 
Well, in technical terms, maybe. But it oversimplifies it so much that it sets you up yeah. for failure and see, when that's, you look at it that that's way. That's where I got led astray in the beginning. And that's where I think a lot of people are obsessed with, you know, oh, I'll just side pass like crazy and I'm ready. You yeah, know? it's not. It, 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 like if you just side pass and that's all that you work on, you've oversimplified the lead change to the point where you haven't addressed the rest of it. You're, it the side pass isn't just move his rib cage off your leg and he changes. You've got his head and neck, your shoulders, his hindquarters, all that stuff you've just left astray. You can't tell me that when you leave that stuff alone and only focus on getting his rib cage off your leg that that's going to adequately set him up from the walk then to the lope. You know, and that's something that always frustrated me was, well, I can't get him changed leads. I'm just going to go side pass more. We're going to side pass faster, yeah. better. And it doesn't work. There is so much more that you can do. So breaking down these exercises, one thing that I had learned that I think is a great exercise and is literally called a lead change at the jog because that's essentially what it is. You know, when you're setting a horse up for a lead change at the canter, you move his shoulder off your leg, you move him over, his front end out of the way, and then you bring his hindquarters up underneath of him and do your, you know, quote-unquote lead or side pass at the lope and change leads. And you can do that by counterbending the horse at the jog, forward and around, and then from the counterbend, you have him shaped, you're pushing the shoulder around, simulating at the canter that um, moving the shoulder off, and then with that shape, then you take your inside leg off to stop pushing the shoulder and you apply outside leg and then you drive him forward and you push his hip up on a straight line. Like yielding the hindquarters on a straight line or pushing the hip up is an essential exercise. And you can do this at all three gates. And, you know, you can do it in a straight line at the walk and the jog and then you can do it on your circle at the canter. And what that essentially is, and you can try this at home, go out to your local highway and ride him down the yellow line of the highway. This is, you know, a, a, uh, I'm just trying to paint a picture, so don't actually go do this. But if you were following that line, you've got the horse's nose is directly above the line and his front feet are on the line, his back feet are on the line. When you press with your outside leg and you move his hip over, his front legs should continue on that line. His nose should still stay directly above that line, but all you did was move his hindquarters to the side and off that line. But he continues tracking forward in the same direction that he was going. Nothing changes as far as where he is heading. You just yield his hindquarters over to the side. You're like engaging his hip underneath of him, and mm -hmm. he continues to go forward. And you can do that at the canter on your circles. You can do that at the jog, which is incredibly beneficial, and you can do it at the walk. And it's important especially to do this at the jog. You don't once you've done it at the jog, you don't find too much trouble at the canter. But if you only do it at the lope, or I mean sorry, at the walk, and then you try and do it at the jog, you'd be amazed at how much resistance you find trying to get them to maintain that forward motion yeah. and move that hip over. And that resistance that you find just going from the walk to the jog, that's your that's your troubles in your lead change right there. Exactly. And if you can't counterbend your horse and then push his hip up out of it and on a straight onto a straight line at the jog. Well, that explains why your horse is either dragging a lead behind or when you try to push the lead over, he dumps his shoulder to the inside and then spits the bridle out and runs off. All those all that resistance you had there going from what you had at the walk to then the jog, that's coming out at the in lead change. We see so often, well, my horse runs off when I use my leg, or every time that I change leads, he dives to the inside. 
or every time I change leads, he changes up front, but he won't change behind. And then when I try and get him to change behind, he runs off. Well, 99.9% of the time, the horse side passes and pushes his hip up at the walk, yields it on a straight line at the walk. But as soon as you go to the trot, it's like you're trying to physically lift the horse yourself. Like there's so much resistance. They're so heavy and so sluggish. Mm -hmm. And that's your problem in your lead. It has nothing to do with the lead change. So I love using that counterbending exercise to get that horse broke loose because I'm essentially working on a lead change and I can do a billion of them. But in the horse's mind, I never change leads. Well, and it, it irons out probably the most area the little block of resistance that you're going to have in there that once you get over it's it's you have a lot easier time at the lope but like if i'm say i'm tracking on a left circle at the jog i've got him counterbent so he's shaped to the right his head's to the right i'm pushing his shoulder around and then i go i basically change legs and start pushing his hip up and bring him on a straight line off of that circle on a tangent effectively that moment where you change over there is where the 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 you know what is going to hit the fan if this horse has any sort of stiffness or resistance there because in order for him to maintain that shape and stay soft and then respond as i switch legs that is so hard for a horse Absolutely to, to figure out to figure out how to stay soft and shaped while maintaining that forward motion and letting me pick up and move those hindquarters over it's that is one of the hardest things to do Exactly. In, in horsemanship is to get is to maintain that shape and be able to move that horse and maintain that forward motion and have him stay soft and not just try to get bracy and spit the bridle out or run off or just ignore you. Right. And the the counter bending and pushing their hip up. A lot of people like to do the side passing, but you can do that same side passing at the jog. And another thing you need to incorporate with your side passing rather than just going straight is making sure you have control of the shoulder and the hindquarters in that side pass. So I like to do a lot of side passing circles, keeping him straight through his body, but side passing a circle where his hindquarters is tracking a little bit faster than his front end. So he does a circle with his hip moving around or doing a circle the other way where the shoulder is moving around the hip, mm -hmm. but they're still technically moving around in a circle sideways. And you can do that at the walk and the jog. And again, same thing. You, when you go to the jog, you run into a lot more resistance than you did at the walk. And if you can't get that resistance done from the, and I'd say that's probably the most resistance you'll find. If you set your horse up for it correctly, you're going to find more resistance trying to iron that stuff out at, from the walk to the jog, that upward transition, than you will from the jog to the lope. It's incredible how that works, but I've found that a lot, especially like moving the hip up on a straight line. For whatever reason, they struggle a lot more trying to figure that out at the walk, and then you try and push it up to the jog. They're really sluggish. They don't want to move off your leg. They're kind of lost. They don't want to move forward. But then once you've got that really broke loose at the lope, it's fairly easy. Like They just kind of pick that right up. But if yeah. you can get that resistance ironed out, it makes the lead change so much easier. And I, you know, hopefully we can go into this in enough detail. We've already hit the cap of the time that we allotted to work on this. And all we got done was working on like on the side passing and the changing leads at the jog or yeah, counter bending but, and but pushing. No, the hip I, up. I think this is an area though, it's crucial because we're in the minority on this. Because most show horse trainers 
they figure, okay, we're changing leads. That's at the lope. We're going to do everything at the lope. So they work on this stuff. They'll counterbend and they'll shape the horse and they'll try to get their hip moved over and they'll get into ginumbus fights because they've never prepared for it at the jog. Uh, they they poo-poo any work at the jog. They do it at the lope in the show pen. It's got to be at the lope when we practice. And yeah, any, you know, you can get it, you can get it done if you survive the wars and the epic battles that are going to ensue. Uh, or you can get the bare minimum done at the jog and then, you know, any ham fisted hee haw could then kick him into it beyond right. that. But if you want consistency, if you want real softness in the lead change, this is where this is the most crucial step that most people just skip right over. Yes. And we need to pick up on right here in the next podcast and finish this part out of it because this is such a crucial point. But um, I think just to kind of cap that off, you like you said, you can't. Um, there's so much to be said about using that jog as like a teaching gate, but the hard part is that it's it's kind of boring because it doesn't look like a lead change, and that's something that I fell into that trap. I know personally, and probably you as well, where you you get so focused on I want to do a lead change that you're like, okay, well I decide past the walk. That's that's a lead change. That's what they said in the book. That's what they said in the yeah, magazine. Now, now I just need to do in, it. Now I need to increase my speed and then go side pass right. still. And <laughs> it's like, why am I staying at the jog? This isn't a, this isn't a lead change. My, my buddies that are that are watching me ride aren't seeing me do these cool lead chains. They're just laughing at me that I'm just piddling around here at the jog. They think I'm, you know, training for dancing with the stars or something. But it's a crucial element. That will then set you up for the long term while your buddies are still over there doing the cowboy change where it's circle, 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 other way to circle really fast to try and get it done. You'll be over there having control, being able to change on a straight line. Your horse changes both their hind end and their front end at the same time. They're engaged. They're soft. They're with you. They're not running off. So it's doing, getting in this boring stage, but getting the foundation laid and getting that horse broke and preparing them for the lead change will set you up long term for the success. But you can't get romantic about, well, got to get that lead change. This other stuff, this doesn't look like lead change. I need to go work on the lead change because that's what the magazine said. No, let's do our due diligence in the trenches, get the work done, and then we can reap the benefits of that later on. Thank you guys for all your support on the Project Horse podcast and the Lundahl Performance Facebook page. If you haven't already, please subscribe and message us with suggestions or topics you'd like us to cover on the show. It makes a big difference in the quality of content we're able to create for you. Thank you for listening and being a part of this growing community.